Welcome to Pocket Economics, a guide to changing lives, our podcast about the ideas which are shaping the EBRD's regions and beyond. Some of these ideas are actively helping us in our mission to invest in changing lives. Others are an important part of the landscape in which we operate. I'm Jonathan Charles. Today we're discussing climate finance. How much would it cost to combat climate change? Who should pay the bill? Who should contribute more, developed or developing countries? Climate change is fast, expensive, and of course the scale of the challenge is enormous. Here to talk about how we can finance the battle against it is Mattia Romani, EBRD Managing Director for Economics, Policy and Governance, former Chief Economist of the Global Green Growth Institute. He's also worked closely with Lord Nick Stern over the years, a well-known climate expert and climate campaigner, of course. Mattia, welcome. Let me ask you, first of all, it's quite difficult, isn't it, to define climate finance? There are quite a lot of definitions. Yes, in fact, it's a term that has uh, uh, been uh, discussed for a long time and, in fact, fought over for a long time and debated for a long time. It is an important term because defining it defines really what is the magnitude of the challenge in terms of financial magnitude of the challenge of tackling climate change, but also who pays for it. And that's why it's been so controversial over the years. So give us a sense of those different definitions then and, and the variety of definitions. Yes, many definitions have uh, really come very close to the definition of what development finance is. And that's really the heart of the matter because uh, development finance is, of course, uh, very wide. It includes things such as uh, supporting countries that struggle uh, providing food for their populations or supporting countries in increasing the, increasing the productivity of their agriculture. But if you think about these last two things, food and agriculture, these are things which are deeply impacted by climate change. So is that development finance or is that climate finance? And that matters particularly for developing countries that are already recipients of substantial amount of development finance. They want to make sure that what they receive for climate is additional to that. That's why in the very first definition of climate finance came out in 1992, uh, in fact, in the context uh, uh, of the Rio uh, mm. agreements, uh, when UNFCCC, yes. uh, the agency that takes care of climate uh, in the context of the UN family, was created. Uh, in that context, the definition mentioned two fundamental words, that climate finance needs to be new and additional. And what countries meant by that, it was pushed very hard by developing countries, is that it needs to come on top of uh, uh, what then was called aid, um, which is that more traditional development finance. That's why this was so um, so controversial uh, at the very beginning. So from everything you're saying, I mean, it's not an academic discussion, is it, this question of uh, a definition of climate finance? It has very real consequences, which definition you settle on. Absolutely. This is uh, not about an esoteric discussion uh, on language. This is about politics. This is about uh, the power struggle before, between developed and developing countries. This is really at the heart of the post-colonial debate on how developing countries have been treated in the past and how differently they want their role to be uh, in the future. This is very relevant for the very poor developing countries, but it's frankly relevant for some of our countries of operation uh, uh, as well. So that's an interesting point you, you bring us to, because really I guess the logic from that is it is a question of who should pay and who should pay. Well, indeed, 
are developed countries. They have grown on the back of the Industrial Revolution, the four on the back of very intense emissions. Uh, should they be considered culpable? Should they be considered guilty for having grown through those steps that have created most of the emissions which now cause climate? Or should they be considered innocent? Because they didn't know what they were doing. We didn't know at the time that those emissions were going to cause climate change. And should developing countries that are now the largest emitters of uh, CO2 uh, equivalent of uh, sort of greenhouse gases in the world, should those countries uh, be stopped from emitting, even then that could actually slow down their development? These are really the big ethical questions that we are facing. But there's another ethical question that relates to that, which is should today's generations take on some of the costs to ensure that the future generations can live in a world that is uh, livable and uh, where climate does not uh, cause substantial risks? How much should we pay today to avoid damages tomorrow? How valuable is the life of somebody who's not yet born? These are all ethical questions which uh, are at the very, very heart of the climate debate and even at the heart of climate finance as a definition. Let's just disentangle a couple of those because, I mean, the first point, we often hear China and other countries saying, you're trying to punish us, you, the G7 countries or the developed world, are trying to punish us for things that you yourselves did but now you want us to pay the price. Yes, this is a dilemma that cannot, in my view, be resolved on the basis, on the basis of an ethical debate. We will always end up disagreeing. Um, just because we come from different cultures, we come from different philosophical backgrounds, and we all face very different uh, moments in our development. Uh, just to give you an example, a Swiss national may find it uh, possible and plausible that they should pay a cost today to save uh, uh, somebody's suffering tomorrow. But if you are coming from a poor country, your desire to save uh, some discomfort to somebody in the future may be very different because you are struggling with putting food on the table today. So economists call it discount rates, but people face very different circumstances that that would imply that their answer to this ethical question is different. That's why my opinion and opinions of, of many, including Nick Stern, who also was a former chief economist here at TBRD, this cannot be resolved on ethical grounds. What we need to do is just look forward and see that we have a challenge and we need to tackle this challenge together and that this challenge comes with some opportunities and we should make sure that people share in these opportunities. So how do you decide who pays? I mean, again, the second question to disentangle is if you're the current generation, how do you decide how much you should pay as the current generation for the future generation? Yes. So the way in which I think of it, first of all, is that maths, the arithmetics of climate change, are pretty hard and we have to understand them. Uh, in order to understand why we can't really find the solution that is going to make everybody happy. So let me take you through the math. I'm sorry to have to do a bit of numbers, but I'm we an economist. <laughs> let me take you through a little bit of math. Today, um, it's about uh, uh, 7 billion people uh, in the world, and we have about 50 gigatons of uh, carbon emitted every year in the atmosphere. So 50 divided by 7, let's make it easy, about 7 tons per capita. Each of us, on average in the world, emits seven tons. We know, because science tells us, that by 2050, we can only emit 20 gigatons per year in the world. And we also know that it's going to be about 10 billion of us uh, in 2050. That means two tons per capita. So from seven tons per capita to two tons per capita on average. Just to give you a sense, uh, the US today emits about 20 tons per capita, Qatar emits 40, 45 tons per capita, India emits about two, China is about seven, the UK, the country where the EBRD is based, emits about 10 
perhaps a bit less, maybe by now uh, eight or nine. So countries are in very different positions on the scale. Uh, but we all have to get to two tons per capita by 2050. And the average is the average. We can't have many countries being above or mm. below. What does that mean? That even if developed countries decided that it was their responsibility indeed, and they had to, and they reduced massively their emissions per capita, a place like the UK, now at eight or nine tons, decided to go radically below this number, how well could it do? One ton per capita, maybe? This would only give a little bit of space for developing countries to be above the two, but not much more. So no matter how we cut this problem, everybody will have to reduce. If we want to resolve the problem, everybody's in the boat together, and therefore action will have to happen everywhere. Now the economics and the finance comes in. Who pays for the actions we take, uh, both in the developed countries and the developing countries. And the answer has been pretty much given by now. And that comes out of the series of meetings mm. that we've had in the last few years on climate change. Including in Paris. Uh, we'll explore all of this. You're listening to Pocket Economics, an EBRD podcast on how economic ideas help to change people's lives. Have your say. Who should contribute more to combat climate change, developed or developing countries? You can contact us at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook, uh, hashtag Pocket Economics. I'm Jonathan Charles. Today we're discussing climate finance with our guest, Mattia Romani. And Mattia, advanced economies have formally agreed to mobilize a hundred billion US dollars a year to address this issue in developing countries. Uh, but there are all sorts of other issues around that. Migration, of course, uh, could be one of the consequences of, of climate change. There's lots of adaptation required. Is 100 billion a year really enough? Certainly not to mobilize the kind of action that we need. But it's a, it's a number. It's a big number. I think we all agree. 100 billion is a big number. Uh, and it is a start. The story of how that number came up is, a, is an interesting one. It came up in Copenhagen. Uh, it was COP15. In 2009. Correct. 2009, we were far away from having a climate deal. We thought that Copenhagen could deliver one, but it didn't. Famously, we had to wait until Paris. Uh, I remember being there, yes. I exactly. missed all the acrimony. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, th that number... Uh, uh, was very different from the numbers that were floated around. There were much larger numbers being floated around. But there was really very little willingness for, uh, from uh, developed countries to commit to a number. But it was clear towards the last week of the negotiations that a climate deal, a deal that would commit countries to reducing emissions, was not on the table. So there was a desperate attempt by the world leaders to come up with something they could commit to, something positive that could come out of Copenhagen. And I think it was a phone call between Gordon Brown and Hillary Clinton. Uh, Hillary Clinton was flying over at the last minute to the COP. She wasn't intending to attend, but given uh, there was a real need for high-level leadership there, she decided to fly over. Uh, and in that, in that call, Gordon Brown suggested to Hillary Clinton that a 100, number bi 100 billion number was put on the table. And at the end, that's what she committed to and that what other leaders committed to subsequently. So what is the 100 billion for and how do you define it? Of course, Hillary Clinton flew back, Gordon Brown flew back, but nobody bothered defining what does 100 billion uh, actually uh, include. And there was a lot of debate. I was partly involved with Nick Stern, high-level panel that the Secretary General of the UN called to define what that 100 billion uh, entails. And the fundamental debate is, is it public or is it private? What does new and additional mean in that context? And that was really uh, a hot debate that lasted a couple of years. The answer to that is, as often happens with the 
uh, issues like this? An institution. Uh, the answer is called Green Climate Fund, and it's an institution based in South Korea, institution that we work a lot with here at the EBRD. And it's an institution that is supposed to take that 100 billion commitment and mobilize it, multiply it, make it that big number that will allow us to finance these operations around the world. And this is what the Green Climate Fund is trying to do. And are there role models uh, in terms of countries that really are doing very well in terms of mitigation, in terms of adaptation? Are there other countries that we can hold up uh, and say they are, they are people we should follow? Well, there are. And in, in a way, uh, the solution to the debate on climate finance, the institution of the Green Climate Fund, is meant really to identify these countries and equip them with the financial means to succeed. There are some examples of countries that are doing fairly well. I'm thinking about, for instance, Costa Rica, that has proven to be an incredible leader in this space, really trying to um, make of its natural resources a real asset towards creating an economic model less dependent on fossil fuels and resilience to climate. Another example I like very much because I worked on it for many years is Ethiopia, one of the poorest countries in the world, which is now one of the fastest growing countries in Africa. And it's a country that has decided that it wants a clean energy matrix and it wants to create a system, an economic system, which is resilient to climate change and can really be based on sustainability. So for instance, they're thinking to create a transport system to move goods, uh, goods around the country completely uh, are based on railway, so they, they don't need to rely on trucks to move uh, goods around. Indonesia is another country that has made incredible strides in, in this area, really trying to create market-based systems um, to uh, preserve its forest, which has an incredibly important role in mitigating the risks of, uh, of climate. And these are three examples. There are some in our region of operation as well. Kazakhstan has been a leader in this, creating from the very, very uh, sort of early stages the basis for a carbon market. It will be the first carbon market, functioning carbon market in, in Asia, but really thinking very widely about what it can do to really lay the foundations for an economy which is more diversified and not based on fossil fuels, with our help. Why are some countries, you mentioned some standout countries, why do you think are some countries better than others at really understanding what needs to be done and moving early? I think there's three reasons that I can come up with. And the first one is the most important one, which is leadership. All of the countries that I mentioned have had leaders that have understood the problem and have committed themselves to trying to resolve it and have done it clearly, strongly, forcefully. Second is implementation capacity. Having government departments that are able to understand that leadership and practically implement legislation, regulatory framework, actions that can substantiate that vision with actual changes on the ground has been very, very important. And all the countries I mentioned actually have strong civil service, uh, civil servants. They have uh, a good, strong private sector that can support uh, the application of these principles and vision. And third um, is support. And this support is not only financial, yes, the likes of the Green Climate Funds, of the ABRD, the World Bank, other IFIs, but also uh, support in terms of knowledge, content, action. Uh, what uh, we created uh, when I was working at the Global Green Growth Institute is something called the GGKP, the Green Growth Knowledge Platform. This is a platform for countries to access best practice on exactly what we are discussing, on what it takes to lay out a plan for green growth and what it takes to really lay the foundations for a different type of economy. So this kind of uh, uh, support is necessary. So I said leadership, 
uh, implementation capacity and good uh, support from international organizations and experience. Absolutely fascinating. Matteo Romani, thank you very much. A big issue for all of us, of course, and a big issue for the EBRD as we're very heavily engaged in interacting in this area. That's it for today. Next time, we'll be discussing inequality and inclusion. Meanwhile, you can share your thoughts with us on climate finance and climate change. You can contact us on at EBRD on Twitter and Facebook, uh, hashtag Pocket Economics. Visit iTunes, SoundCloud and ebrd.com slash podcast to download the latest episode. Until next time, goodbye.